The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we have a wonderful, very interesting topic. It's the early LDS church history and the records for that period. My guest is Keith Erickson, and he's the director of the LDS uh, Church History Library in Salt Lake City. And the how this show got going, I was visiting... Uh, in Salt Lake City last January. Actually, I was teaching uh, for the Salt Lake Institute. And uh, some of us were invited to tour the new temple that was opening in Provo. Uh, And this was a a tour that uh, allowed people who are not Mormon to come into the temple before it was consecrated. And it was such a fascinating tour. Um, And uh, I was talking with David Wrencher, who is the Chief Genealogical Officer for Family Search, about the history of, of um, Mormonism, the LDS Church, and that's how this show uh, idea got generated. And uh, David put me in touch with uh, Keith, who is joining us today as uh, Director of the LDS Church History Library, and um, we're, I think we're in for a treat today. So, Keith, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. And it's great to have you. Um, So as I I start uh, my show with all of my guests, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, raised, your education, and your careers? 
Sure. Uh, I grew up in Baltimore, just outside of Baltimore. My uh, father's side uh, is from Kansas. My mother's from New England, uh, and we were living uh, there. I went to school um, at Brigham Young University. I have a Ph.D. in history from Indiana University, and I earned an MBA from the University of Texas. Career-wise, I've worked in the auto industry, uh, auto manufacturing in Brazil. Uh, I've worked in uh, publishing. Uh, I was a history professor. Uh, and for the last two years, I've been the director of the library here in Salt Lake City. Oh, very interesting. So th- how did you get interested in uh, becoming director of the library? Well, honestly, uh, that was uh, an invitation they extended. It wasn't uh, necessarily on my uh, career path, but it it kind of fit. So, uh, <laughs> very good. And then, are, are you interested in genealogy yourself? I am. You know, I've. Uh, I think for me, it started with uh, knowing my grandparents and hearing their stories, and then. Uh, as I got more involved in history uh, officially uh, through my degree and through teaching, I just saw the power of genealogy to connect history with uh, with people and their lives and their stories. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a historian as well, and that's, uh, that has always uh, played a role with my genealogy work as well, I, history and genealogy together. So what is your role as director of the uh, Church History Library? So uh, it's really a, kind of a, a massive job that kind of surprises me each day. Uh, I, I think the, the quickest summary is that uh, we care for all of the records of the church uh, itself as an institution. And so that involves uh, gathering and collecting these records, some of which come through uh, sort of a corporate records management program as the the work finishes, we collect the records, but others were out uh, purchasing uh, records, historical records, people donate records. Uh, part of my staff here are archivists and librarians who catalog and arrange and describe those records. And then we have a uh, uh, public service side of the operation where we are putting records online. We've got a, just under 8 million images uh, in our online catalog, but we also have... Um, a reading room here on site and, uh, you know, some public programming. And so uh, really just uh, try and take care of uh, the records of uh, in every dimension. So it sounds like the uh, scope is worldwide in, in terms of the collection? It is. Uh, in fact, about four years ago, we began uh, collecting records uh, on site. So we have 18 locations around the world. Uh, where we'll gather records in those countries and and l- physically leave them in the country and uh, then digitize them and, and make them available. Um, so, so yeah, it's a worldwide effort. In fact, I just got back yesterday from uh, spending a week in Peru and looking at uh, the record collecting work that we're doing there. So, oh, very good. So then, your is your intention to digitize? everything and and put it online or or will there be a, a cutoff point well uh, right now the way we talk about it is everything that we can uh there's certainly uh various kinds of restrictions sometimes living persons related sometimes privacy sometimes copyright um 
but within that framework, we're trying to um, uh, share everything we can. Uh, All right, very good. So, and we're going to, uh, later on in the show, we are going to talk about the specific records that that you do have and how we can access them. So, to to give us our historical perspective, let, let's uh, talk about the founding of the church and and the migrations, uh, which were a, a few. So. I guess, how would you like to start with that? Um, yeah, I could just I maybe <laughs> tell the story uh, in brief. Is okay. that a way to start? Uh, the church Absolutely. was or the church was organized in New, in the state of New York in 1830, uh, and about a year later, the headquarters and the main group moved to Ohio, uh, and then. By the middle of the 1830s, uh, there was also a large group in Missouri. Uh, there were some troubles in Ohio and Missouri, uh, different troubles, different places, mostly political in Missouri, mostly economic in Ohio, that led to uh, kind of a unification of the group in Illinois uh, in the early 1840s. Joseph Smith was assassinated uh, in 1844, and that prompted, um, ultimately, uh, a move of the largest portion of the Latter-day Saints uh, to Utah. So that's kind of okay. the thumbnail version, moving across the country from about 1830. Uh, the first group arrived in Utah in 1847. So. 18, okay, so it took th- uh, three years for the... Uh, opening of the, of Salt Lake. So, uh, also uh, going back to the origins, what what is the origin story for the church for, with Joseph Smith? Sure. So uh, Joseph Smith uh, was a young man. Uh, he came from a rather uh, poor family. Uh, he was born in Vermont. They lived in several places trying to make ends meet, and an opportunity. Uh, arose to move to New York shortly after the Erie Canal uh, was completed. And so, um, or I'm sorry, a little bit before, it was while work was going on uh, the canal. Um, So they moved to New York uh, in this time period where uh, there's uh, lots of uh, kind of bustling going on. uh, People are flowing in to work on the canal. Uh, They're coming from different places, uh, bringing different experiences Part of uh, what was in flux in that moment was uh, thinking about religion. Uh, The Methodists had been involved in a revival for uh, some time period, and uh, Joseph, as a young boy, talks about it as a war of words and a tumult of opinions. And uh, he was looking uh, here and there and uh, attending churches, and... um, Ultimately, he found that he couldn't quite reconcile uh, what one church said or another or what the Bible said. And so he found a passage uh, in the book of James that says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And so that's what he did. Uh, He went out into the woods near his home and prayed and uh, had an experience um, that has over time come to be called the first vision uh, in which uh, he saw uh, God and received instruction and that instruction kind of grew eventually to include um, directions to uh, a nearby hill where uh, a record um, was buried, uh, written on golden plates, a record of uh, the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. And uh, through um, 
Divine Help. Joseph translated that record. It was published as the Book of Mormon. Um, the church was organized, and then uh, the movement kind of began uh, uh, formally with that formal organization in 1830. Okay, and when was the first vision? Uh, Eighteen twenty. Okay, all right. So ten ten years, and and New York uh, actually. And where where was Joseph Smith when this happened? So uh, today it's known as Palmyra, New York. Okay, and and so that's central kind of western New York, and uh, yep. that that's known as the uh, burnt over district. Um, can it is. That's right. Place place us in historical context with that. Yeah, so uh, that was a nickname that it received from, uh, I mentioned briefly, the, the Methodist uh, revivals. Uh, in wider context, uh, it's part of an era uh, often described as the Second Great Awakening, a moment when uh, Americans were looking for religion, were organizing, uh, were debating with each other. Uh, New York was a place, uh, again, in part because of the Erie Canal, because of the transportation routes that these circuit preachers would come through over and over and over again. And so that particular spot in New York also got the nickname as the Burnt Over District because uh, the, the, the preachers had come through so many times uh, that uh, it was uh, just a very common place for people to be thinking about religion, debating about it. Uh, and trying to figure out uh, where they fit in the world. Okay. And then what was the impetus to uh, move on to Kirtland, Ohio? So a um, couple of things were, were part of that growth. Um, there was a need for more space, uh, uh, more community. This is, again, part of this westward uh, push Um as the canal uh, finished, as transportation uh, grew, uh, there were opportunities to push farther west. Uh, you could get materials uh, and supplies. Uh, and so um, as, as the organization grew, uh, there was a chance to move. Uh, eventually, um, there were, Joseph also received um, revelation that uh, pointed to Missouri in particular uh, as, as an important place of gathering uh, for the saints at that time and, and eventually uh, as an important place for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that kind of stirred um, the desire to move and to gather and to be uh, near those uh, important places. Okay, and then how does uh, Nauvoo in Illinois uh, come into play? And I, I will mention that I am—I grew up in Illinois, and I went to visit Nauvoo, which is just a fascinating uh, place to visit. Yeah, so um, Missouri, uh, when the Mormons started to move in, uh, the previous settlers were primarily of southern origin, and Mormons uh, were primarily— uh, New England, uh, Mid-Atlantic, the earliest converts. And so in the mid-1830s, as Mormons move into Missouri, there's immediately a, a clash of cultures, really, um, as uh, the Yankees and the Southerners are uh, have different worldviews. And, you know, we're talking uh, in the 1830s, just right after the nullification crisis, when... Uh, 
Southerners are threatening to nullify uh, Northern laws. We're still on the eve of the Civil War, and so these are serious, real uh, tensions uh, between North and South. And it plays out in small scale uh, in Missouri. Uh, the Mormons move in in the group. Uh, they tend to, they tended to uh, settle together. Uh, when election time came, they tended to vote together. And so uh, those cultural, political, religious differences uh, grew and grew. Uh, Missouri was uh, right on the frontier. It was a place uh, where some people would go to get away from the law. There was kind of a vigilante-style justice. And so uh, those grew into uh, conflict. They grew into armed conflict. Uh, ultimately, in 1838, the governor of Missouri uh, signed an order uh expelling Mormons from the state uh, on threat of extermination or death. And so uh, in the winter of 1838 to 39, there was a really hasty exodus uh, from Missouri crossing the river into Illinois. And the church was able to purchase some property uh, at a place that they renamed Nauvoo uh, and built a city. And so Nauvoo uh, became this place of of refuge, and there really was a sense of uh, being refugees, being cast out. Uh, they lost land, they lost property, they lost homes, they lost the improvements they'd made on the land uh, as as they were uprooted. And so, Nauvoo became the place where uh, they gathered. They built a city. Uh, the state of Illinois uh, offered a charter for the city that gave them. Uh, protection uh, of uh, religion, uh, uh, protection against uh, government interference. And so um, Nauvoo was the place where uh, the saints built a, a temple, the first place, uh, I know we'll talk a little bit later, but uh, where they could do uh, temple work on behalf of ancestors. So Nauvoo became a place um, not only to gather the current saints, but then to think about uh, how they fit uh, within kind of the history of the world, the history of their families, and um, so there were there were you know, three or four uh, good years in Nauvoo uh, of peace and prosperity, uh, and so Nauvoo has a, a great place in the hearts of Latter Day Saints. Ultimately, they left, uh, but um, it, it was a place of peace for a while, especially after the trouble in Missouri. And then what turned the tide in terms of the, the peace that they were experiencing in Nauvoo? Well, uh, some of it was the same things. Um, the, uh, I guess there's another branch of the story we can weave in. Uh, in the late 1830s, Mormon missionaries went to England and to Scandin uh, eventually to Scandinavia, but they started in England and started inviting immigration. And so by about 1842, 1843, the population of Nauvoo rivaled Chicago. And that's kind of hard to comprehend today. Uh, as you know, Nauvoo is just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but there were about uh, estimates of 10 to 15,000 people in Nauvoo. And so, uh, again, uh, in a state where... Um, you know, it began as a welcome of a small refugee population, and then they quickly grew uh, to rival the largest city in the state. And 
Uh, and so um, their religion is different. Uh, their voting, they tended to vote as a block again. They tended to vote for their interests. And um, so ultimately those differences uh, became uh, consequential. There was a, a, a group in Nauvoo that kind of defected from the church uh, and began to publish uh, a newspaper uh, uh, antagonistic to the church. Uh, Joseph Smith, uh, the charter of Nauvoo, had given Joseph Smith uh, uh, really kind of sweeping power. When you look at it in context of other charters, uh, he was the mayor. Uh, he was the head of the militia. Uh, he was also the head of the church. And so uh, exercising those powers, uh, he shut down that newspaper. Uh, <clears throat> that was, ulti- that was the, the specific charge that... Uh, brought his arrest, uh, and then he was transferred to a nearby uh, city. Uh, and while he was being held there in Carthage, Illinois, uh, a group of vigilantes broke into the jail and uh, and assassinated him there. So. Okay, and then when did uh, Brigham Young uh, convert and, and come into his role? So Brigham Young uh, joined the church uh, fairly early. Uh, he encountered it living in New York uh, a year or two after the church was organized. Uh, he studied the church for uh, about a year, a year and a half, uh, trying to make sense of its teachings and what he knew and how he felt. And uh, Ultimately, he was baptized, and uh, he migrated to Ohio uh and was part of the uh the growing movement there it was in Ohio that Joseph Smith organized uh called 12 apostles and so Brigham Young was one of those that first group of 12 apostles um the 12 apostles were uh in a process of uh seniority and so between the time in Nauvoo, uh, in Ohio and then when Joseph Smith was killed, um, Brigham Young had risen to become the most senior apostle. And so uh, upon Joseph Smith's death, um, the, uh, the guidance of the church fell to the quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so Brigham Young uh, led the church in that role, um, and then uh, in 1847, um, he was made the president of the church uh, and led. Uh, he lived for 30 more years uh, and so presided as president of the church uh, for those 30 years. Okay. All right. And we're, when we come back after our break, we're going to talk about the migration out uh, to the Great Salt Lake. Uh, so we are going to take a break. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their story to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. When you are uh, listening on the, the blog talk page on your computer, you will see a follow button. If you press that, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. Uh, you'll also see a bunch of social media buttons on the blog talk page. Please share the Forget Me Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. Um, also, take advantage of the uh, Forget Me Not Hour archives. Uh, we have over five years of shows, and many of them are timeless. And finally, uh, you can take the Forget Me Not Hour on the go with you. Uh, you'll find it on iTunes under Jane E. Wilcox. And today we are talking about the early LDS church history and records, and my guest is Keith Erickson. Uh, so, uh, Keith, let's, let's pick up the migration uh, uh, heading out to the Great Salt Lake. Why was the Great Salt Lake area chosen? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and it's as the saints were in Illinois, in the Midwest, and looking for a place to go, a, a place to really find peace, they were looking in a couple of places. They looked to Texas. They looked, uh, this is the 1840s when uh, Americans are going along the Oregon Trail to Oregon. So they're looking at Oregon. They're thinking about California. Uh, and they looked uh, at the the Great Basin uh, out in the middle. And uh, ultimately, uh, that was the place that they chose. So, Okay. And th- then once they got there, what did they do to establish the church and, and establish the claim to the land? It, it was, from what I understand, a part of uh, Mexico territory at the time. It was. So uh, when they left uh, the United States in 1847, uh, the, the United States had finished fighting the war with Mexico, but they hadn't wrapped up the treaty. Uh, that was uh, finished in 1848. So when they came, uh, it was Mexican land. And then a year later, uh, really everything north of our southern border uh, half of Mexico uh, was taken during that U- uh, during the treaty of that uh, U.S.-Mexico war, and so a year later they found themselves uh, back in the middle of the United States again. Okay, and then how did they establish the, the church uh, in the basin? So there were probably a couple lines of development. The first was really just uh, pure survival. Uh, laying out farms, uh, establishing settlements, building roads, uh, very dry climate out here. And so there was uh, efforts to irrigate, uh, re- redirecting water from streams uh, to, to start the communities. Uh, over time, <clears throat> they embraced uh, different forms of communication uh, from the telegraph to uh, the Pony Express. Uh, they embraced different forms of transportation, uh, uh, assisting with the transcontinental railroad and railroad construction. So part of it was just basic infrastructure uh, to have a place to live and, and trade and work and operate. Uh, as far as the religious component, uh, they quickly built uh, some temporary uh, places of worship. Um, uh, and then uh, as time passed, they were able to build the, uh, buildings out of uh, stone and more durable materials. Uh, ultimately, 40 years later, uh, the uh, Salt Lake City Temple was completed. That's probably one of the more iconic 
pieces of architecture uh, in the church, a tall uh, Gothic building with six spires. Uh, and so, um, and as each settlement uh, went forward, they built uh, tabernacles, gathering places, uh, and then ultimately smaller uh, meetings for, for smaller uh, congregations. The, the tabernacle in Salt Lake City um, became the home to the tabernacle choir uh, uh, and then uh, had an organ uh, placed inside in the late 19th century. And uh, that's one of the more famous or uh, more well-known parts of the, the church, uh, but really growing out of that kind of communal uh, experience. So. Okay. And if I'm remembering correctly, the cornerstone for the uh, stone temple that's now standing was, was laid fairly early. It was. It was. In fact, uh, the the first week that Brigham Young was here, uh, he he walked out and uh, and identified the spot of the temple. And Salt Lake as a city was laid out in relation to the temple. So there's a city block that was identified, and then uh, the streets are numbered uh, going uh, in a grid, but they're numbered going south, north, east, and west. Uh, all radiating outward. Uh, the numbering system radiates outward from that temple block, which today is called Temple Square. Okay, all right. And then there were conflicts with Native Americans, which was par for the course with Europeans uh, migrating you know, throughout the United States history. Uh, so will you tell us a little bit about that? And there's also, I, I did some research for a client who's one branch of her ancestors were Mormons, and uh, he was a member of the Mormon Battalion. Uh, one of her ancestors. Would you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I guess I'll start with the Native Americans. You mentioned that was par uh, for the course. Uh, very true here. Uh, Mormons had um, a slight twist in how they viewed Native Americans compared to other Americans. And that was, uh, we talked about the Book of Mormon being a record of uh ancient peoples uh, who lived on the American continent. So the twist that Mormons had was that they looked at the Native Americans on the landscape and saw them in some way as being descendants of the people in the Book of Mormon. Um, So that led to interest in the Native Americans. It it prompted uh, kind of the framework in thinking about uh, preaching the gospel to the Native Americans. Uh, But it didn't... uh, change the fact that these were two very different cultures, uh, Mormon American culture and Native American culture. Here in the Great Basin, there were different groups um, of Native Americans. The the Ute Indians uh, were were probably closest to Salt Lake, but as the as a settlement extended south into Utah and Arizona and north into Idaho, uh, uh, northward eventually into Canada, southward eventually into Mexico, there were uh, you know, conflicts uh, all along the way, fear, and there were trading relationships, there were conflicts, there was uh, at times misunderstanding and violence and um, just part of the story. Um, the Mormon Battalion part um, is an interesting part of the migration story. Uh, in the, during, uh, we mentioned how the migration occurred during the uh, U.S. war with Mexico, and so as the saints were mobilizing uh, to leave, um, there was a request from the U.S. government to uh, put up a, a group of soldiers to uh, participate 
in the war. And so uh, they left. Uh, they gathered this battalion together that was nicknamed the Mormon Battalion, and they left from the Midwest. They went down uh, south, uh, and the march went uh, into Texas and then along uh, the southern border through um, New Mexico and Arizona, uh, and ultimately finished the march finished and their assignment finished uh, in San Diego. And so kind of two twists, two interesting dimensions to that story. One, the men who joined the battalion, uh, their families uh, migrated without their uh, husbands or fathers or older sons. But then two, uh, they were paid for their military, their time and military service. And so that brought some cash into the community. Uh, some of them, when they got to San Diego, came uh, straight to Utah and gathered uh, with the saints. A few others uh, stayed around uh, and were uh, actually present uh, at Sutter's Mill uh, when gold was discovered. Um, and so there's a there were there was a link built uh, between California and Utah, um, uh, really from that presence of the the battalion and uh, from the very uh, early days of California. Okay, very interesting. And then another uh, piece about California that I read as I was preparing to uh, uh, write the questions for you is that there actually was a migration from California, uh, and they got there by ship. Would you, you tell us about that? Yeah, so this links back again to the uh, the missionary work that was going on in England uh, and the converts that uh, that were made in Scotland and Wales and England uh, were called or invited to join uh, with the main body of the saints uh, in Salt Lake City. And so from that standpoint, uh, they would travel um, – by boat to New York or sometimes to New Orleans, uh, up up the river or overland to somewhere in Missouri and then uh, connect with the Oregon Trail, the Mormon Trail uh, coming in. So there was a group who said, um, well, that's a lot of work to cross that much country. Why don't we just sail uh, all the way around? So they sailed um, and landed in California and then made the overland route uh, just through California, uh, a shorter trip. So longer time at sea, a uh, shorter time by land. And um, so, uh, so yeah, ultimately the Mormons were coming here from both sides, east and west, uh, to gather in Salt Lake City. <laughs> yes. And then I read an article in uh, a history uh, journal magazine about the handcart pioneers. And this article focused on a woman in particular uh, from England who went to Salt Lake City with a handcart. Will you tell us about that migration, which is also fascinating? Yeah, so the first group uh, the, to cross the plains uh, was led by Brigham Young in 1847. That group, about 150 people, mostly men, mostly on horseback. So they went quickly. Uh, and in fact, they returned back to Iowa by December uh, of 1847. So they they came, they left some people, uh, uh, you know, they kind of laid out the city, uh, left some people farming, and then went back. The the most common pioneer experience was not uh, a quick moving horseback unit. Uh, it was a slower um, experience by wagons, uh, and that went for. Um, 
20 years. Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1868, and that's really when uh, the overland uh, walking, traveling, uh, it just got easier. You took the train and you got to Salt Lake City. Um, so during that 20 years, the most common experience was uh, a larger wagon train, usually uh, three to 400 people uh, and probably three times as many animals uh, moving uh, slowly uh, across the plains. But that required... Uh, for that time, uh, some capital and investment. You needed uh, a wagon. You needed oxen. You needed uh, supplies. So uh, somewhere in the mid-1850s, uh, a concept was developed to use uh, a smaller um, means of transportation that became known as hand carts. They had two wheels rather than four. Uh, they were pulled by people rather than by oxen. So you were... Uh, not investing in as much. Uh, it was kind of piloted. Uh, the idea was um, that you could go faster, uh, lighter, uh, and move more quickly. Also, it would be a, a more economical way uh, to get across the plains. So 10 uh, companies uh, went by handcart, um, and uh, of about uh, 400 total companies in those 20 years. And so uh, it's a smaller set of experiences. It's a little bit different, a uh, lot more uh, walking and, and pulling than, you know, riding a horse or riding in a wagon. Um, the groups who, serve, who, who lived through the handcart experience uh, uh, often told stories of, uh, of being um, you know, kind of brought together by necessity, uh, being uh, forming close friendships. Uh, two of the companies uh, on a particular year left later in the season, uh, and they got uh, caught in the mountain pass uh, in Wyoming uh, in a severe snowstorm. Uh, so uh, the handcarts were okay uh, walking across the plains. When they got into the mountain, uh, the Rocky Mountains, it really became tough pulling those handcarts, uh, and so it was. Uh, ultimately, the process was abandoned in favor just of wagons. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so um, people who could come from England, they could have come from the U.S., uh, kind of gathering in Missouri, and uh, could have joined a wagon or a handcar company. Okay, and I read that that many of the handcart uh, pioneers were recent immigrants, England, Wales, Scotland. Is, is that correct? Yeah, and that kind of relates to the the uh, economy of it. The, those converts had already spent money on uh, ship passage. Uh, they'd left much behind uh, already. Uh, you know, they came with a, a bag or two, and so they were in a position, one, uh, not to have money to invest in a wagon and two, to have fewer materials to say, Hey, I could just throw this on a hand cart and pull it across. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I, I think so. Ultimately, uh, the, the, the vast majority of the overland pioneers, uh, originated in England and Scandinavia. Okay. All right. So then we've, we've talked about uh, the origins of the church in New York, the migrations, uh, and now we're, we're getting everybody to Salt Lake City. Um, about how many people made the trip and who would be considered uh, the early pioneers? So um, 
there has been a number that was kind of uh, tossed around for years by historians. Uh, as far as we can tell, it started in the 1920s with no data behind it, and the number was 70,000, nice round number, and you see it over and over, 70,000 Mormon pioneers. Uh, and again, this is from 1847 to 1868, after people started immigrating by train, it became harder to separate uh, who was a migrant and who was a train passenger who kept going. Um, but so then the number that had floated around forever was, uh, uh, for about a century was 70,000 overland pioneers in those uh, 20 years, 21 years from 1847 to 1868. One of the things that we've been doing at the Church History Library, uh, and it's really been about 20 years uh, underway, is try to identify actual people who, uh, with, the, with the proper records and documentation, uh, who crossed the plains as pioneers. And so uh, it began as a, kind of an index uh, here among librarians. It grew into uh, an in-house database. A few years ago, we published it online as the Mormon Overland Travel Database. And right now we've identified 57,000 uh, unique individuals um, who crossed, uh, who we can document uh, crossed in that period. So uh, we don't know if 70,000 uh, is the cap, but um, that's what we've been able to find uh, and document so far. Okay. And then we, we're going to be talking about the Mormon Overland, uh, actually Mormon Pioneer Overland Travel Database. <laughs> I'll, I'll get that that right. Um, as, as part of your online uh, uh, presence and Let's talk about records now, because the that database used a variety of records, which is listed right there on the page. So during this whole period, uh, as as we're migrating and the church is, is being uh, founded and moving, what types of records were generated? This is one of the exciting parts for me as a historian and, and working in this library, is that the early Mormons generated all kinds of records. They really uh, were and and continue to be a people of record. The day the church was organized, Joseph Smith received a revelation commanding him to keep records uh, of what was going on. And so we have uh, today, surviving from that period, uh, minutes kept of various meetings, uh, People kept individual diaries. Local congregations uh, were charged with keeping records of uh, membership and uh, tithing contributions and uh, local activities. Uh, by the time the church uh, had migrated to Nauvoo, uh, another re revelation came that said uh, that recorders should be appointed in every uh, town or every congregation to record the activities and to send their records centrally uh, so that they could be preserved. And we we today have inventories of records. As the pioneers came across the plains, they, they filled wagons uh, full of records and uh, signed them all into the wagon. And when they got to Salt Lake, they checked uh, the box that they that they made it all out. The uh, Latter-day Saints published uh, newspapers. Uh, the, you know, the early 19th century was 
really an age for the democracy of printing and publishing. And the Book of Mormon is the first example, but uh, you know, every small community in America is, is mounting a newspaper, and the Latter-day Saints have multiple newspapers in Ohio and uh, Missouri and Illinois. Uh, uh, they start newspapers in Utah. And so there is just uh, a really exciting abundance of, uh, of records from the early Mormon uh, converts. So it sounds like you have most of these records at the uh, Church History Library? We do. Uh, and so uh, the records... The Church History Library building is, today is new. Uh, it was opened in 2009, but the, the records uh, had been kept in various places. Uh, in fact, uh, in addition to the records of the uh, of the church as a religious organization and individual people, uh, we also hold the records of the Utah Territory, the Territorial Congress. Uh, the re- those records ended up uh, here. Uh, when Utah was created as a state, there were provisions uh, to keep state records. Um, but uh, this kind of record keeping, um, they they ultimately flowed into the, the church's possession, and, and we uh, care for them here. Okay. And do you know of any records from this period that are not with the church history library? Yeah. So um, there are a couple of records. Uh, reasons uh, why that could happen. Uh, Like any community, uh, records get lost and destroyed, uh, fire, uh, shipwreck. Uh, We know of records that uh, we used to have or people would talk about uh, that that didn't survive. Uh, There was a fire in one of the record buildings uh, here in Utah in the 1880s, and so uh, several records were lost there. there were also um we talked about uh the largest uh body of latter day saints that moved uh west with Brigham Young after Joseph Smith's assassination there was uh a crisis of of leadership and where should the church go uh and different groups uh broke away and so uh from each other uh and went different directions and so some of those groups continued to uh keep records and uh, today, uh, kind of among uh, libraries and archivists, we, we have relationships with those other uh, repositories and um, and uh, work to share the records uh, collectively. So. Oh, very good. Okay. So uh, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we're going to talk uh, more about uh, the types of records you have at the library, what's online, and, and all of that uh, Good stuff. So uh, we'll take a break. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the first Wednesday of the month uh, for November. That's November 2nd uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, the topic is going to be the Erie Canal and its records. Uh, So the types of records that were generated uh, during the building of the Erie Canal and as it was uh, functioning. Uh, My guest is Pamela Vittorio. She is a scholar uh, about the Erie Canal and a genealogist. So we're going to put history and genealogy together again and focus on the Erie Canal. Again, that's November 2nd at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then the third Wednesday of the month on November 16th, uh, my guest will be Alvy Davidson. And he'll be uh, talking about Masons and their records. And that show, again, will be at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Alvy is a professional genealogist and a Mason himself. Um, so that's our third Wednesday of, uh, of the month. And then if you have questions uh, for guests or any suggestions for topics, please contact me. Uh, you can find me at janeewilcox.com, J-A-N-E-E-W-I-L-C-O-X. And uh, today we are talking about uh, the early LDS church history and the records uh, with Keith Erickson. Um, so, so Keith, um, uh, where to start? Oh, actually, I should mention to our guests, we are going to, our listeners, we're going to extend by about 10 minutes. Uh, so we'll, we'll cover now the different types of records and uh, what the library has. So should we uh, research our Mormon ancestor, what types of records at the Church History Library um, will we find, and in, in what, what's online right now? So I think the, the simplest way to think about the types of records here is to think about three streams by which records come into our holdings. Uh, one stream is the official records of church activities. And so these may be uh, the central church that holds a conference or has leadership committee meetings or purchases property. Uh, They could also be local congregations um, that keep minutes of local meetings or uh, submit an annual historical report. Uh, These institutional records all come in through... uh, uh, channels that we've created with uh, established these channels with the different record creators. So we'll say every year send in this report and every so often uh, send in the other. So that's one stream. Uh, a second stream uh, is that we have uh, a, a, a purchasing operation. Uh, we've kind of taken a mandate uh, to collect everything uh, by or about uh, the church, and so we're purchasing uh, books that are published by university presses. When there are uh, articles in uh, scholarly journals or Sports Illustrated about a Mormon or something like that, we'll uh, purchase a copy. And uh, and then the third stream is donations. We have people uh, who come all the time and say, uh, "I've got my grandfather's diaries and or letters and personal papers and." Uh, my grandmother played such and such a role in the church. Would you be interested in these records? And um, so that in the end of the day, that means uh, there are all kinds of published and unpublished records uh, from the very beginning uh, to, uh, you know, to yesterday. Uh, as we, we also have a digital uh, web harvesting uh, process where we'll go out and capture uh, web pages and, and media coverage. And uh, and so 
if it's about the church and its people, we are trying to uh, collect a copy of it. So um, my what I always say to genealogists is uh, you need to take a look here because uh, chances are we have something. If, you, if they were a Latter-day Saint, uh, chances are we've got something related, if not to them, certainly to their community, to their congregation, uh, to the experiences that they would have had. Okay, and then what have you put online? So we uh, are put up a catalog uh, online uh, about four years ago, and so uh, it's open to the public. Anybody can find metadata, uh, description, bibliographic information about uh, almost all of our holdings. I say almost all. There are a few records that uh, we retain internal for internal confidential use. Uh, there are some records that, uh, you know, if we acquired it last week, then it hasn't made it into the catalog yet. Uh, we have some internal systems that we use to process things. But uh, the catalog, you can find descriptions uh, of nearly everything that we have. Uh, about three years ago, we began uh, digitizing the actual record itself and putting those images uh, into the, ca the online catalog. Uh, and we're at uh, 7.8 million images. It, it started slow uh, and is, is ramping up. Uh, in the 2015 calendar year, uh, we put up 2.7 images uh, of that 7.8. And so uh, this is something... Um, we expect to uh, accelerate rapidly and as fast as we can. Okay. All right. And then you also have some uh, databases. I, I looked at uh, one called Early Mormon Missionaries. Will you tell us about those? Yeah. The, the databases all have their origin in um, the concept of creating finding aids across collections. And so we have uh, 174,000 collections of materials and your ancestor may appear in several of them. There may be a photograph collection with a photograph, and there may be a, a record of a local community uh, in, uh, in that congregation. So for about 100 years, staff at the library have been creating little indexes that will say this person or this topic is found in multiple different collections. And so today, uh, those those internal indexes are being published as a variety of different databases. So we have one uh, of every missionary who served in the first hundred years of the church's history, uh, from 1830 to 1930. That's our newest one that we released uh, earlier this year at RootsTech. Um, we have the database of pioneers that we talked about uh, already a little bit. We have another one that's called the Journal History of the Church. And this is the oldest one. This is the one that's about 100 years old, and it's organized by date. So every any time uh, one of the librarians found something that happened on a day, uh, they, they put it into this scrapbook. Uh, it's Right now it's about a 1,200-volume uh, scrapbook, and, and it's indexed. And so... Um, so for an example, uh, when a pioneer company crossed the plains, the day they arrived, it would, they, they would say, it, this scrapbook would say, you know, these 267 people arrived, and it would list uh, the people. And so um, 
so this journal history becomes uh, a way to find out uh, all kinds of things. It's indexed by name, by place, by event. And so that's, the, that's an example of if you find out that your ancestor was living at a certain time or a certain place, then the journal history can help. Uh, you know, we talk, uh, one of the things we say to genealogists is that you come in with, uh, with, a, with a skeleton, uh, a birth date and a marriage date in place, and we can help put the, the meat on the bones of that skeleton and, and describe and have the records to talk about what was going on in the place where they lived, where they were married, where they had their children, uh, and put that into, into historical uh, context and, and, and find the stories. So. Okay. So what is the best way to use the, the website, the databases, the catalogs? When I was uh, going through, uh, actually there are some links on the uh, blog talk page that uh, Keith sent to me. Uh, so I was going through that. I, I was a little overwhelmed <laughs> because there is so much there. So what what's the best way to approach this? There is so much. My The advice I always give is to start with the catalog. That will get you right to records. Uh, and that is uh, our comprehensive catalog uh, of everything. But if you know your ancestor, uh, particularly for the missionary database or the pioneer database, if you know they were a pioneer or a missionary, uh, that's a place to start. The, I kind of think about the databases as being a, a door into the catalog. The catalog has everything, and the databases are a more focused way so if your ancestor was a missionary, for example, you could find your ancestor in the database, and then the database results page also returns links to items in the catalog um, that are relevant to your particular ancestor. So uh, if you do have a, a know for sure that one of those doors of pioneers or missionaries uh, is relevant, then that is definitely a place to start. Um, Otherwise, uh, the catalog is the best place to, to jump in. One thing to remember about the catalog, uh, we, most of the content here in our collection is, is archival material. They're large collections. And so um, you'll want to keep track of not just, not just look for your ancestor. Let's say they didn't, your ancestor didn't keep a diary, but also think about their best friend. If their best friend or neighbor kept a diary, uh, I, I talk about this as one of the uh, the eternal rules of, of Mormon history. If it was raining on your ancestor's neighbor, it's raining on your ancestor. And so if if you keep track of their friends and neighbors and acquaintances, uh, if you know what congregation they were in, we can maybe find, search for the congregation, we can find people in the congregation who did keep a diary, and maybe we'll find stories about your ancestor uh, that way. So. Okay. All right. So if, if we find something uh, in the catalog that hasn't been digitized and, and maybe is not, uh, we want to go beyond uh, what the databases have, uh, do we need to come out to Salt Lake City? You don't. Uh, every catalog record has a little button on it that says suggest digitization. And so click the button, uh, give us uh, some information there, uh, and then we'll do an assessment of the of if we can digitize it. And, and again, the, the main factors there is if it's copyrighted uh, or uh, if maybe there's some kind of private information or personal information, there may be a restriction. Uh, but for the most part, um, 
we can digitize the record and uh, and put it uh, online. And then so uh, if you make the request, we'll digitize it. And then part of why we ask for the information uh, on the form is that once it's digitized, then we let you know right away that uh, your record is online and ready to go. Okay. And about how long might the digitization process take as long as it's a, a go? So uh, it, the the process takes from two weeks to four months, and everybody says, "Wow, how, what's the difference?" Uh, there are really two. Uh, one is the size of the collection. So if it's two photographs uh, and they're from the late 19th century, they're in public domain. Uh, we can start on that. We may have that done in three or four days. Uh, if it's a collection of a hundred boxes of material, uh, and it's uh, recent, or if there's, we don't have a real clear donor agreement that transferred rights, and we have to be contacting, and maybe the donor passed away, so then we're contacting a descendant. That's more uh, on the more complicated end of large size, complicated research, uh, and we'll have to figure out. So it really depends on the item uh, and uh, and the and the review that's required to get it ready to go. Okay. All right. So I understand that there are some records that are not available to non-LDS members. Is that correct? Um, in the church history library, uh, we haven't really organized it that way. Uh, there's another library in Salt Lake City, the Family History Library, and they do have a reading room um, for members of the church, but here in the historical collection, we um, it's we don't have that that kind of a reading room. Okay, so so then for the church history library, everything is available to everybody. Yep. Okay. All right. And then, are there records uh, like many Protestant churches uh, kept track of who left? Uh, maybe they were migrating somewhere else, or maybe they were excluded uh, for some infraction. Do you have those types of records? We do. Um, often. Uh, I say often. Well, I add the qualification because it does depend on the record keeper. Um, but uh, there is a formal process uh, for a person leaving the church, uh, Sometimes they'll talk about it as having their name removed from the records. Sometimes uh, if it was for uh, a more serious transgression, there'll be a formal excommunication process. Uh, and those processes, uh, there are uh, records of those processes. Uh, those records are typically um, not released to anyone publicly, uh, in you know whether they're a member of the church or not. Uh, they're considered uh, priest-penitent information. Uh, and so we we uh, protect the right of people to go to their uh, spiritual leader and uh, talk about what they need to talk about. So, okay. so we do right. uh, restrict access to those kind of confidential uh, communications with the spiritual advisor. Okay. And then um, we'll end with uh, two questions I know – probably are most frequently asked about Latter-day Saints. Um, so, so the first, especially for our, us genealogists, um, when I was visiting the or touring the, the temple in Provo, uh, 
we saw the baptismal font, which was, you know, very, it was actually large and, and then um, uh, I think there were 12 oxen supporting it. And I know that's the, the baptism of, or for the dead, it also called proxy baptism. How and when did this practice start? Yeah, this is a practice that really has its root in one of the oldest uh, intellectual problems of Christianity, uh, and namely, what happens to people who never had the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel? And so uh, that larger kind of theological question had um, a real personal uh, expression in Joseph Smith's life. His older brother uh, died when the brother was about 26 years old, uh, and this was someone that Joseph looked up to and admired. Um, As Joseph grew older, uh, uh, like many people uh, in the frontier times, he and his wife... uh, lost children in childbirth. Uh, And so the question, this kind of question of what happens um, to these people, they never had a chance. They never had a chance to hear, to uh, exercise faith, uh, to follow Jesus Christ. And so uh, while the saints were living in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith received a revelation uh, that taught that... um, because these persons continue to exist, uh, you know, the, they, uh, their body had been buried, but their spirit lived, uh, they continued as uh, beings who have the ability to choose. Um, what they lacked was a body that could go down into the water and be immersed and, uh, and complete uh, the ritual. And so uh, in Nauvoo, uh, they began a practice of baptizing living persons on behalf of persons who had passed away. And so uh, that became really the theological root for Mormons to identify their deceased parents and grandparents and uncles and, uh, and then uh, onwards. Um, the, the practice, uh, when the saints crossed the plains, um, they didn't uh, practice uh, proxy baptisms so much uh, as they were traveling. Um, uh, there was um, a temple that was built in southern Utah in the 1870s, and then another one in Salt Lake City um, and so uh, in the 1890s. And so as those temples were built, uh, there was now a, a place, uh, a consecrated place to do those uh, baptisms. And so it was that in 1894, uh, they created the um, Utah Genealogical Society as a kind of a companion um, to doing the research that could lead to uh, the work being done in those temples. So, so yeah, okay. the Mormon right. interest in genealogy has a theological root. Okay, so is it possible that that uh, deceased uh, people were may have been baptized, even though their descendants are not Mormons? Of let's let's take my grandparents for an example. Is it possible that they may have been baptized? 
So uh, I deal with kind of the public coming in and out every day. When you, when, when you ask a question about is it possible, it certainly is uh, that people okay. do things. <laughs> the the guidance, the instruction that is given, uh, and this goes, again, all the way back to the origins of the practice in Nauvoo, is that uh, the driving interest is that you're working with your own family, your own ancestors. Um, and so the general guidance is if you're not related to a person, you shouldn't do temple work for them, uh, or you should secure permission from uh, a, the nearest living relative. Now, that being said, you know, you give guidance and, and then sometimes people do uh, what they want. But uh, sure. so, to, so your question of is it possible, I would say, yeah, it's it's probably definitely possible. Is it what's advised? Okay. Uh, no. So. Okay. All right. And then my last question, uh, the practice of polygamy, polygamy. When did that start and uh, and why with the early church members? Yeah, so that also began in this same early period uh in the when Joseph Smith was living in Ohio and then uh more so uh while living in Nauvoo. Uh the larger uh reference frame here was that one of the things that Joseph Smith felt like his mission uh, involved was uh restoring all of the truth uh that had been on the earth. Uh, that had been lost at different times. So uh, they were similar uh, uh, to other groups who were looking back to the the church at the time of Jesus and thinking that things had been lost and wanting to restore uh, all things. And as they read the scriptures, one of the things that is described, uh, more particularly in the Old Testament, uh, are instances where uh, different uh, persons... Uh, uh, Joseph of Egypt or uh, King David, King Solomon uh, practiced polygamy. And so uh, that was uh, introduced uh, as part of this um, uh, restoration of biblical practices. So, so that was its origin okay. uh, in the earliest, uh, earliest years. Okay. And then when did the practice stop? So uh, the practice uh, ran afoul of uh, U.S. government regulations. The first anti-polygamy law was in 1862 uh, during the Civil War. Uh, it wasn't really enforced. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, it was enforced increasingly in the 1870s and particularly the 1880s. Uh, and in 1890, uh, the president of the church, Wilfred Woodruff, uh, issued a public statement uh, saying that the practice would cease. Uh, ultimately, when Utah became a state in 1896, uh, they worked out kind of an amnesty arrangement uh, in which uh, no new marriages would begin, but the the existing marriages were allowed. Uh, they wouldn't be prosecuted. And so... Um, so largely by the you know the first decade of the 20th century um there were no new marriages being undertaken uh and then you have kind of a generation before um uh those existing marriages uh people passed away so 
Great. All right. So as we wrap up our show, is there anything else you would like to add about uh, the history and or the library? Well, I would just uh, invite your listeners to uh, visit us online or in person. There are ways online to talk to us. I've got uh, a team of reference specialists who will be happy to uh, to hear the particulars of your ancestor or your ancestor's story and uh, to try and figure out what kind of records there might be. We're, uh, we're happy to help people find records and and to make those connections with their ancestors and Happy to have the privilege okay. to talk to you and them. All right. And actually, uh, two questions I forgot to ask. Where is the library located? How close is it to the Family History Library? And then what are the hours? We are downtown Salt Lake City. We talked about Temple Square as being the center of the city. We're on the north. We're across the street on the north side of the square. The Family History Library is across the street on the southwest corner of the square. We're open uh, Monday through Saturday. Uh, Weekdays, it's 8 to 5. We're late on Thursday evenings, and Saturday we're open 10 to 3. Okay, very good. All right. So then as as I ask all of my uh, guests at the end, what is your own ancestry? So I'm... I don't know how common I am. My ancestry comes from lots of different places. My last name, Erickson, is Norwegian. Uh, they were some who immigrated uh, to Illinois in the 1830s to work on a canal there. Uh, on my mother's side, uh, her, the, her ancestry comes through uh, England and uh, through Germany. Uh, they settled in New England, um, and so... Uh, it was actually my, my mother's parents who joined the Mormon church uh, when she was two. Uh, they joined in uh, New Hampshire in the 1950s. So a um, little bit of uh, sure. European, different uh, European okay. countries in my ancestry. All right. And then how about your father's side uh, in terms of, of joining the Mormon church? Uh, yeah, so those uh, those Norwegian immigrants uh, to Illinois, uh, they came in the 1830s working on uh, a canal, and uh, in the early 1840s, uh, a Mormon missionary came into their little Norwegian settlement and preached, and five or six families converted, and so um, we were one of uh, those. Okay, and then they made their way to uh, Salt Lake City? They did. So they went in 1849 uh, with a group of, uh, actually uh, there was a group coming from England and they kind of tagged along. And uh, so they, uh, yeah, crossed uh, in 1849. Okay, <laughs> and have you actually done the research on that family using the records uh, from from the library? I have on that particular family. Uh, and then with my grandparents, uh, it's been more of oral histories and and uh, recording their stories. So, huh, Very interesting. And is there any ancestor uh, that you have been drawn to in, in your research? Uh, wow. Um, I, it would probably be those, uh, those two that I've talked about, these, this Norwegian family uh, that immigrated, and then uh, my grandparents that, I, that I've known and, and worked with, so... Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, This has just been a fascinating uh, show, and and thank you for telling us about the history of the uh, Latter-day Saints and then also the uh, Church History Library. Um, So thank you. 
Thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> All right. And uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. 